Well, we're going to continue to worship the Lord with our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. And this week, maybe some of you got belated Christmas cards, which I always love. And uh, we got one, actually, as the church this week from Bode, who's one of the pastors that we're supporting. He's in Philadelphia with Transform Church. And I got to meet him over the course of 2017. He's in a leadership coaching network that I'm a part of. And as we got to know him over the course of the year, we discovered that not only was he planting this church and, uh, you know, giving himself to that and raising a family, but he was also working 50 hours a week at Comcast, which has got to be a terrible job. And uh, so we're like, there's no way this can happen. And so some of the other people in the network and I, we talked and uh, we decided we're going to cover his salary for the next year. So he sent us a card once again, just saying, thank you so much. It's made such a difference in his church and in his family that now he's able to commit himself to that. So thank you for your generosity that allows us to be able to part, be a part of what God's doing, not just in our city and our church, which we're so grateful for, but all over the place. So Father... Uh, as, as we come before you, God, we're so grateful that you have first given to us and you've been so generous with us. And as we give back, Father, we pray specifically for Bode and Transform Church this morning. God, that in the city of Philadelphia, God, specifically in the area where he's planted, God, that you would do a new work, that you would empower him, that you would strengthen him, encourage him, and provide him everything that he needs to accomplish the vision that you've given him to see lives transformed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And if you're a guest with us this morning, thank you so much for being here. We're so grateful that you chose to be here with us on the last day of the year. And not only that, but it's the week after Christmas. Uh, so thank you for being here. There's some communication cards in the seat backs in front of you. We'd love to have you fill one of those out. And you can turn it in at Guest Central on your way out. And we have a gift bag for you as a way of saying thank you so much for being our guest today. Then also, we have a new series coming up in February that I want to let you know about. We're going to be doing a series called Breakthrough, uh, which is a really cool series. It's a six-week series starting February 18th. And to go along with Breakthrough, uh, we're also going to have small groups that go along with it. It's not only do we want to teach you how to see breakthrough in your life, and that's the whole idea behind it, is that we want to see breakthrough in our lives in different areas, whether it be in relationships, uh, healing, emotional things, provision. Like There's all sorts of areas that we need breakthrough in, and we're going to be looking at how the Bible shows us to get to the place of breakthrough in our life. We don't want that to just be you come here and hear me talk about it for six weeks on Sunday morning. We, have, we want you to get involved in a group with some other people where you can encourage each other, talk through it together, pray through it together, really make it a part of who you are uh, so that you can see breakthrough in your life. So that'll be going on for six weeks starting February 18th, and we're looking for some people that can be host for the different groups. Um, so basically what that entitles is if, if you have the ability to open up your home, uh, serve a little refreshment to someone, and be able to hit play on a DVD player or play on your computer to stream it, uh, the videos, this little 15-minute videos, then you can host a group. And we would love to have you be a part of that. You can sign up to be a breakthrough host on our website, radiant2.com. There's a little sign-up link right there on the homepage for you. And then on February 11th, there's going to be a training right here after church uh, to give you some of the things that you'll need to know as you host the group. We have books that go along with it. It's going to be really incredible. So I encourage you, if you have the ability to do that for six weeks, uh, whether you're already leading a group or you want to lead a group for the first time, we'd love to have you sign up for that, again, at radiantA2.com. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. We're starting a new series today, uh, and it's called 21 Days of Prayer. And the, the whole hope behind this series is, at the beginning of the year, we've uh, traditionally done 21 days of prayer and fasting. And we've just been teaching on prayer, on fasting, and believing, and praying for things together. Uh, what we did last year was incredible. Uh, 
I mean, we, we have a building because we prayed and we fasted for a church. And so I believe in prayer and fasting with everything inside of me. But what I decided to do this year wasn't just to make it that we have 21 days of prayer and fasting and then we go back to life as normal, which is typically what happens. But I want to spend 21 days with you helping you to see the value and the importance of prayer and fasting and making that a part of your life, not just for 21 days, but to make it a part of your everyday life from here on out. Because I believe that the power that, that we've seen um, in different stories that I've been sharing uh, last year about the things that God did as a result of 21 days of prayer and fasting, that's available for every day of our life. And the life that we live relationally, knowing God, is just so much different when we're a people who pray and fast. So 21 days, they say, is how long it takes to form a habit. So we're going to spend 21 days together learning about how to develop the habit and the discipline of prayer. Because I believe that it will transform and it will change your life more than anything else. It's done that in my life. It's done that in the life of my friends and family, other people that I know. And it can do that in your life as well. So uh, as we're moving into the new year, you're making resolutions. How many people uh, for 2017 made a resolution? Any of you? Okay, we have some. <laughs> you guys are really realistic. <laughs> How many of you kept a resolution? Any of you? Not me. I can't raise my hand. My body is still the same. I did not keep any of my resolutions. But if you can make this one, this one desire that you have for this new year is you're going to change the way that you pray. It's going to change the way that you live your life. Uh, the resolutions are funny things because it's always an if-then relationship. Every time you come into it, it's okay, if I do this, then this is going to be the result. And typically you enter into these if-then relationships or scenarios when you're beginning something new, like a new year. I remember when Anna and I got married. We got married in August, August 26, and that first year uh, when January came around and we were doing our benefit stuff for work, we thought, okay, we need to start saving for retirement so that someday we are able to retire. And you hop online and have the retirement calculators, and it's the if you save X amount of your salary and if you get a 100% return every year for the rest of your life, then you'll retire with this amount of money. I remember sitting there and looking like, oh my gosh, like, we can retire with $7 million if we save this amount. And it grows, it was like 8% every year, which was really optimistic. And then I remember thinking, well, what if we save this much, we'll retire with $12 million. Like, oh my gosh, this is so perfect. And then the stock market collapsed, and I realized that the if didn't hold up, and that then what became, I'm going to work for the rest of my life. Uh, I, it's the same with, with working out. It, if I go to the gym, which you know I never do, I talk about this almost every week, but seriously, tomorrow's January 1st, I might go. We'll see how tonight goes. Uh, if I go to the gym, and if I eat right, then maybe I can have like a one-pack eventually in my abs, or maybe I'll just live a life where I age gracefully and I'm able to enjoy quality and quantity of life. But the if of eating right and exercising is the hard part, uh, but the if I usually live out is eating ice cream and laying on my couch, which produces a then that I'm not really thrilled about. Uh, it's the same with, uh, if you're a student here this morning, you, under, you just got through finals. And the whole if at the beginning of the semester for you is if I study really hard, and for me it was if I don't play GoldenEye with my friends on Nintendo 64 every single night, and I study instead, then I'm going to do really well in all of my classes and I'll keep all of my scholarships. 
But if I end up playing Goldeneye every night with all of my friends and never studying until the night before the exams, then my life is much harder. It's full of if-then relationships. Almost everything that we do in life is an if-then relationship. And there's an if-then relationship that we have with God as well. Now, I'm not talking about God's love for you. There's no if-then in God's love for you. His love is pure. It's unconditional. It's not dependent upon who you are or what you've done. He loves you completely and totally more than you could ever understand. And it's not dependent upon you. It's all dependent upon him and his love for you. But the blessings that you receive from God are an if-then relationship. It's like with kids. If you have any kids, you know that you love them unconditionally. It's not because of anything that your kids do that you love them. You see kids that do great things, and their parents don't love them any more than the parents of kids who uh, end up you know, being in prison for horrific things. There's a love that you have for your children that isn't dependent upon anything that they do. But your blessing for your children is dependent upon the things they do. My children are able to earn my blessing and my favor by, by the way that they behave. Uh, we got them Kindles for Christmas, little Kindle Fire things, and they've already had them taken away from them about a gazillion times in one week because they were doing things that weren't uh, earning our favor, so there was punishment that came along with it to bring correction to them. Uh, or they're not responsible enough. I got Ethan a dart gun earlier this year, and I told him, I said, hey, if you ever shoot your sister with this, like, we're taking it away. You don't get to shoot people, except me. Daddy's the only person that you get to shoot with a dart gun. And if you're not responsible enough for this, then we're going to take it away from you. And I remember two days later, he comes to me, he hands me the dart gun. He's like, Dad, I'm not responsible enough for this. <laughs> he didn't even, I didn't even have to find out that he'd done anything bad. He just came and handed it over to me. So I, I, there was the if-then relationship. If you're responsible with this, then you're going to receive the blessing of this Nerf dart gun that you'll have a lot of fun with. But if you aren't responsible with it, then you're not going to be able to enjoy it and play with it. Well, there's an if-then relationship uh, that goes along with the way that we interact with God and the way that he interacts with us and all of humanity. And it talks about this in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. It says, If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. As we look at this verse, we're just going to break it down a little bit. It starts out with if. That's the condition, that this is what needs to be done. God's about to tell us everything that we have to do to be able to receive the then from him. It starts out by saying, if my people who are called by my name. So who's God talking to in this? He's not talking to uh, anybody other than the people of God. He's not talking to Republicans. He's not talking to Democrats. He's not talking to atheists, to Buddhists. He's not talking to any person that you might think is engaged in the sin that you are most upset about or think is the problem with the world that's around you. He's speaking only to the people who are called by the name of God, the people who follow after him. And I like what he says, is that they're his people, but he says that they're the ones that are called by his name. What he's saying is that we as people who follow after God, the identifier for our life, what identifies us more than anything else in all of the world is the fact that we are God's people. 
We're a society that puts lots of labels on everybody and on everything. And we take up all sorts of labels on ourselves. We have political parties that we affiliate with. You think of yourself as a Republican or a Democrat, a progressive or a conservative. You think of yourself as white. You think of yourself as black or whatever ethnicity you might be. And these are all things that are part of who you are. They're part of what make you up. But the number one identifier for us is that we are the people of God. We are those who are defined by the fact that we have chosen to submit our lives to him and to follow after him. And that gives us an identity that's greater than any other identity that we have that might be a true part of what our identity is. But first and foremost, our identity is that we are the people of God. We are those who are called by his name. Not any other name, but the greatest name that we call ourselves by is the name of God. And he says that if they will humble themselves... Now, to humble yourself, the word there in the Hebrew means to actually to reduce yourself in rank. It's talking about, it can be used in military sense of where, uh, you know, you're able to take yourself from being a general and say, I'm going to reduce myself in rank to a private. I'm going to go from one who's giving orders and commanding things to putting myself underneath the authority of other people. Uh, it's also used in social economic terms of I'm in this class of people, I'm in the upper class or the ruling elite class, but I'm going to voluntarily choose to take a reduction in rank and to put myself into the people who now serve others. He's saying that the first thing that we have to do is we as the people of God have to choose to humble ourselves. And then we pray. He says that we humble ourselves, and a part of the way that we humble ourselves is by praying. Prayer is an act of humility. It's an act of saying that I'm not able to do this. It's saying that, God, I can't provide this thing for myself. I'm not strong enough. I'm not empowered enough. I'm not equipped enough, whatever it might be. But, God, I have to humble myself and come, reduce myself in rank to say I'm not the one who's able to do this. I'm coming to you, God, and I'm going to seek after your face. When it says to seek after your face, the idea of the face means that you're in close proximity to someone. Like, I loved when Ann and I were dating, talking on the phone. Uh, we had little calling cards back then because you still had to pay long distance way back in the day when we were dating. And like, it was great to be able to talk and we were able to communicate, but there was nothing like being able to see her face to face. There was nothing that having the proximity that, was, that came with being close to her and it's saying that about God is, God, we don't just want to pray. We don't just want to communicate with you, but we want your presence. We want to be close to you. We want to know what it's like to be so close to you that we tangibly sense your presence. That's what we're seeking after. There's all of these other needs that are going on in the world. There's these other needs that we have. But the thing that I'm going to commit myself to as I humble myself, as I commit myself to prayer, is that I'm going to seek after your face. And then he says, and turn from their wicked ways. This is the idea of what repentance is. That idea of turning from our wicked ways means that there are things that we've been doing that are morally wrong, that are morally evil, things that are opposed to God, things that are opposed to the truth that he's revealed. And what God's telling us that we need to do is to turn away from those things so that we can seek after his face. God, I've been going after things that you didn't want me to go after. God, I've been living in a way that you never called me to live. I've been doing things that weren't just questionable, that weren't just maybe not the best things, but I've been doing things that were wicked. 
That's the idea behind this, is we're humbling ourselves so much that we're able to be honest and admit that we have been doing things that are like ugly and disgusting in the eyes of God. He says, I want you to humble yourselves, my people. You're calling yourself by my name. You're finding your identity in me. You're reducing yourself in rank, just naturally, voluntarily humbling yourself. You're praying. You're seeking after my face. You want my proximity, my closeness in your life more than anything else. You're turning away. You're repenting from all of the wickedness. You're coming after me. And he says that then, this is the if we do all of these things, now the then that we receive, the blessing or the benefit that comes from the if, is that then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That's the then. God's going to hear us. You know what that means? It means that God doesn't always hear your prayers. Think about that. This, Peter talks about this. He's telling husbands in Peter that because of the way that you're treating your wives, God doesn't hear your prayers. There are things that we can do as believers, as the people of God. I'm not saying that any repentant person, that God doesn't hear you when you cry out to him, but if you're just living self-righteously, if you're living calling the name of God but not really living after the name of God, then your prayers, you might as well not be praying them because they're empty, they're meaningless. It says that they actually can become disgusting to God. But when we humble ourselves, when we repent of our sins, then it says that he's going to hear our prayers. And not only is he going to hear our prayers, but that he's going to forgive our sins and he's going to heal our land. And when it talks about healing our land, that's an all-encompassing thing. What are the problems that, that we're facing? Uh, for the people of Israel at this time, what God's doing, he's telling them what's going to happen. They're dedicating the temple. The presence of God has come in a tangible cloud. They can't even continue to minister. The worship leaders are trying to lead worship. The glory, the glory cloud of God's presence falls, and they can't even play. They can't even sing or pray anymore. They're just awestruck by the presence of God. And God then appears to Solomon years after this, and he's saying, okay, here's the deal. This is what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to work. You're supposed to follow after me, but... I also know that you're not going to do this perfectly. He's the God who can see into the future. He doesn't just know the past and the present, but he sees into the future. And so he's telling Solomon this to tell the people that this is what you need to do. When you get to the, right now, everything's awesome. You're great, you're loving life. But someday you're going to abandon me. Someday you're going to fall away from me. And you're going to be in a place where you're going to be occupied by other nations. The families are going to be torn apart and destroyed economically. You're going to be in ruins militarily. You will be occupied. Like Things are going to be really bad for you. But, and when that happens, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek after my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and I'm going to heal their land. And that healing of the land speaks to everything. It speaks to the occupation issues. It speaks to the injustice issues. It speaks to the economic issues. It speaks to every issue that they're facing that God's going to bring healing to them if they do these things. But then he also goes and he lets them know what it is that's going to happen if they don't do these things. God, because I said he knows what's going to happen, he says, but if, and uh, this is verses 19 through 22 of chapter 7, but if you turn aside 
and forsake my statues and my commandments that I've set before you and go and serve other gods and worship then, then I will pluck you up from the land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house, which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? And then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he's brought disaster on them. What God is saying is that if you're going to turn away from me, if you're going to forsake all of my commandments, all of the ways that I've revealed to you that you're called to live as my people, if you're going to reject the truth that I've, I've revealed to you, then there's going to be punishment that comes to you. If we reject God as the people of God and what he's revealed to us, and again, this is speaking to us, the people who follow after God, not to the people who don't, but if we, the people of God, reject him and his statutes and his commandments, then disaster is going to come upon us. Now, we don't like to talk a lot about the fact that God punishes, but I think it's a really incomplete view of God if we don't talk about that, because it's a part of what God has revealed himself to be, is that he's a father. And what does every good father do to their children if they love them, if they do something that's going to bring destruction to themselves? They punish them. But because he's a father... What is this heart in bringing punishment to us? Is it to destroy us? Is it to condemn us or to shame us? Or is it to bring correction to us? Every time that I punish my children, it's because I love them enough to do it. It's because I see what they're doing is going to lead to harm, it's going to lead to destruction, it's going to lead to ruin, it's going to lead them away from the plans, the purposes, and the call of God on their life. And because I love them, I punish them to bring correction to them to get them back on the right course so that they can mature, so that they can grow. Uh, that's what, and we've talked about this before, is that God punishes and we shouldn't despise his discipline, but we should embrace it. We should be grateful for the fact that God disciplines those that he loves. And that's what God is saying is that if you do these things, if you as my people, if you decide that you're going to reject me, you're going to reject my purposes and plans, you're not going to live a holy life, you're not going to continue to live as my people, because I love you, I'm going to do things, bring punishment upon you that will lead you to the place of correction, of where you see this is not the life that I want to live. When God's supernatural hand of blessing and protection is removed from you, that drives you back to God because you realize how good you had it when you were following after Jesus. It's the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son is enjoying all the blessing of being a part of his father's household. He thinks that there's something better out there for him. The father removes the hand of protection and blessing and lets him go on his way and come into the natural result of his actions. The son realizes how good he had it in his father's house and decides that he wants to come back. And that's what God's saying is that I'm the father that will let you walk away, but I'm the, the father who's going to allow you to come back. And I'll use punishment as a way to bring correction to you so that you realize how good you had it when you're following after me and living in my household. And I'm going to welcome you back into my household. He says, this is the punishment that comes. But remember, but when all of these things happen, if we will humble ourselves, if we'll pray, if we'll seek after the face of God, if we'll turn from our wicked ways, then he's going to hear us from heaven 
He's going to heal our land, and he's going to forgive our sins. That's the if-then relationship that we have with God. The reality that we live in right now, and this is what I encourage you, think about the world that we live in. 2017 was an interesting year, to say the least, on so many different levels. The reality that we live in isn't because of any political party. The reality that we live in isn't because of any people group. The reality that we live in is because of the people of God. It's because of the church. It doesn't say that God's blessing and the healing that comes comes from any political party. Well, if we gotten this person or that person in office, if this person or that person was out of office, if we got this policy passed, that's not what it says. It doesn't say, well, if these other people would just stop sinning, if this, these people are the problem, it doesn't say that. It says that the blessing that we receive is dependent upon us, the people who follow after God. The future that we're going to move into in this new year isn't dependent upon the political parties. It's not dependent upon any other people group. It's not dependent upon policy. It's dependent upon the church of Jesus Christ. It's dependent upon the if-then relationship that we've been called to. The future is on us. And so this is what we need to do. If we recognize that this if-then relationship exists, then we need to discern the times. What is it that we're living out? How has the church been? Has the church of Jesus Christ been seeking after God, been praying, been humbling themselves, been repenting? If it is, then we're going to see blessing over our nation. We're going to see issues being resolved by the healing that comes from Jesus. Or is that not the reality that we see right now? When I look around, I see a lot of issues. I see a lot of areas in our nation where we need healing. So many issues. We all do. We can name them from here until the sun goes down today. What is it that we can expect to continue to happen based on the if-then relationship that God's revealed to us in prayer and repentance as his people? Can we expect the deep divides that we see to get better, or can we expect them to continue to deepen based on the state of the church? Because really that's what all, the state of the nation that we live in is the reflection of the state of the church. We've been a church that is powerless because we've been a church that doesn't pray. We've been a church that's powerless because we've been seeking our power in other people. We've been seeking our power in other things. We've been trying to advance the kingdom of God through the systems of man. And in doing that, we've walked away from the God who called us to follow after him. The God who is always our source of provision. The God who has the ability to bring healing to our land. When I look at the country that we live in, what I see is that the church has not been the church that God has called us to be. It's not on any party. It's not on any people group. It's not on any particular sin that you're upset about today. It's on us. The church of Jesus Christ. We're the ones that have been failing. We're the ones that haven't been living up to the if that God has called us to. The future that we will, the, the reality that we live in right now is because of us, 
and the reality that we will move into in the future is also because of us and the way that we choose to live as the people of God. And so then this is the second thing that we need to do, is we need to humble ourselves, repent, and pray. That is the only solution, it's the only hope that we have, is that we need to humble ourselves, say, God, I need to, I need to be reduced in rank. I've thought way too much of myself. I've thought way too much of my own self-righteousness. I've thought way too much of my own ability to provide and to fix things and to do all of these other things. God, I'm reducing myself in rank and recognizing I'm not the master. I'm not the power holder. I'm the servant. And I'm so glad to be your servant. I just want to do what you want me to do. God, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to repent of the sin that's been in my life because there's sin in every one of our lives. You know it because the Holy Spirit continues to speak to you about it and to convict you of it. He doesn't try to shame you or condemn you because of it, but he convicts you. You know that I'm called to more than this, that Jesus' blood was shed for me and it washed me and cleansed me so that I had the ability to break free from the sin that continues to bring destruction in my own life But I just have to walk into that now. I have to change the way that I think. I have to say, God, forgive me of the sin. I'm coming after you now. I'm not going to follow after the other gods anymore. God, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to believe that when I pray that you're going to move and that you're going to do something to bring the healing to our land that everything else has failed to do. A lot of people think that's really simplistic. Like You can't just pray. Praying doesn't do anything. Or, you know, like, it's got to be about action. We have to have all of these actions that accompany us. Now, there are actions that accompany us. If we're a people of faith, you can't separate your faith from the actions that accompany your faith. Your faith produces the actions that you're doing. We talked about that uh, a while ago, is that if you aren't doing anything, then it means that your faith is dead. But what's really going to produce results, not just in our life and the, 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 the scope that we have influence in, what's going to bring systematic change to everything that we see is going to be the power of Jesus Christ demonstrated in response to the prayers of his people. Think about this. The really big things in life. For 400 years, the Hebrew people are slaves in Egypt. Just horrific slavery. What brought them their freedom? It wasn't that they they unionized and I'm all for unions. It wasn't that they formed a political party that was going to try to bring a grassroots effort to bring change, and I'm all for all of that stuff. But it can't bring the big changes that need to happen. What was it that brought change on that kind of a scale that led to two, three million people being freed in an instant? It says that they were crying out to God because of their oppression, and God heard their prayers. And he raised up Moses to go to Pharaoh. And it wasn't that Moses went and he got a clever campaign slogan and rallied people, got a bunch of funding, all of that stuff, compromised every value that he had to get on a, a ticket. He just goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, God says to let his people go. Pharaoh says, no. So what does Moses do? Okay. I'm going to let God take care of this one then. So what does God do? He pours out miraculous signs and wonders to make it very clear to Pharaoh that he's not in charge and that he needs to do exactly what it is that God has commanded him to do. 
Not only does Pharaoh decide to relent and let all of the Hebrews go free, but he says, take all of our gold and silver as well. That's a miracle. And what did it come from? The people of God crying out to God. Think about Jericho. As this nation, they've been living, uh, you know, 40 years in the desert, God just miraculously providing for them again and again and again. Now they're going in to take on the most fortified city that exists, maybe on the face of the earth at the time. Walls so thick that they're having chariot races around the top of it. So what do they do? Do they build a better battering ram? Do they come up with, okay, we need to have some guerrilla insurgent strikes. We need a military option. No. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to march around the city one time a day, six days. Don't make a sound. On the seventh day, you're going to march around it seven times, and at the end of the seventh time, you're going to blow on your horns and you're going to shout. You imagine being like Joshua, like, God, this is the plan you gave me? I got I to gotta tell all of my army to do this? Like, they're going to think I'm crazy. Can you imagine being Jericho's commander sitting there on the top of your wall? Like, these people are stupid. What do they think? Are they trying to bore us to death? Like, what is going on? Well, what do they do? They march around seven times. They toot on their horns and they raise up a shout. The walls come crashing down. So many times you see that Israel walked into military victory without ever lifting a sword. God was the one who went before them, and he's the one who fought their battles for them. It wasn't by anything that they did other than they cried out to God. God heard their prayers, and he healed their land. How was it that you entered into salvation? The greatest issue that any of us have ever faced is that we were separated from God by our sin, and there was nothing that we could do about it. We lived out death, and death awaited us, and that was it. It was the problem that every single one of us faces, the problem that none of us had any kind of a solution for. How was it that we received salvation? It wasn't by anything that we did. It was by everything that God did. We just cried out to him. He said, God, forgive me. I'm repenting of my sins. I'm seeking after your face. I'm praying. And we received salvation. All of these things that we need, all of the miraculous provision that we need, all of the change that we need to see in our world, to see healing come to our land, is all found not through our political systems. It's not found through our military. It's not found through anything else. It's found only in the people of God repenting of their sins, humbling themselves, and praying to God, him hearing us, and him coming and healing our land. And my favorite is Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe as bad of a ruler as there's been as opposed to God as anyone ever could be. You could say, we just need to get a new king. Like, you know, we need to assassinate the king, get a new king in, we need, you know, just to impeach our king. I don't know how their system worked. But what happened? The people of God cried out. God appears to him, speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, gives him the mind of an animal, and drives them out to live like an animal for a period of time. Nebuchadnezzar humbles himself and says, truly, there is no God but the living God comes back, the entire nation's blessed. Why? Because God revealed himself. I love the example of Paul. Paul's whole heart, living in an incredibly evil political system, under Nero, you know what his desire is? His desire is to stand before Nero. And it's not even to confront Nero, who's as horrible as an emperor as Rome ever had. It's not to call him out on his sin, which there was many. 
He wanted to stand before Nero so that he could proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and to call him to repentance. That was his desire. That was the desire of the church, is that true change isn't going to be found in people, but true change is going to be found when we humble ourselves, when we repent of our sins, when we pray and God hears our prayers. And I don't know how he's going to do it. It's going to be through signs and wonders. I don't know if it's going to be through knocking walls down. I don't know if it's going to be through changing the minds of the people who are in positions of power. God's the one who gets to determine how he wants to do it. That's his. That's the then part of it that he's in charge of. We're only in charge of the if part, if we humble ourselves, if we pray if we seek after the face of God, then we know what it is that God's going to do, however he chooses to do it, but we know that he is always going to be just and he's always going to be faithful. So this is the last thing, is we need to recommit to seeking after God and worshiping him alone. More than ever before in 2018, I believe that's what God's calling us to, to be a church, as a radiant church. We're going to be a people of prayer and worship. What did Jesus say that his house was going to be? We make a big deal and a lot of emphasis on teaching. We think that teaching is the greatest gift that God gave the church. That's just not true. Jesus didn't say my house is going to be a house of teaching. He said my house will be known as a house of prayer and a house of worship. So that's what we're going to go after. I'm going to do the best job I can to continue to teach the Bible to you every single week. But more importantly than that, I'm going to do everything that I can to help us grow into a house where we pray and where we worship. Because the best teaching in the world, which you certainly don't have, will never change the heart or bring healing to the land. That's something only Jesus does in response to the prayers of his people. So we're going to pray. Evan Roberts is one of the people that I have always admired, he was the central figure of the Welsh Revival that took place, I think it was 1904 and 1905. He was a miner, and uh, he used to just take his Bible down into the mine, and he'd read the Bible on his breaks. And one day there was an explosion in the mine, and it, it singed the pages of his Bible, and somehow he miraculously survived it. And after that, he realized how short and how fleeting life was and that every one of us is going to, to one day die and pass into eternity. So he decided, God, I want you to use me to see revival in my land. So he starts reading his Bible, and it's like I was talking about a couple weeks ago. He saw that there was this thing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, God, I need that. So he was praying and fasting and asking God to baptize him in the Holy Spirit. And then one night, in the spring of 1904, I believe it was, he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. He starts spending three hours every night with God. He was a single guy. And so for three hours every night, he's just spending time worshiping, praying, reading his Bible, enjoying the presence of God. And God speaks to him and says, that I'm going to use you to see 100,000 people in Wales come to know me. So he starts prayer meetings. And it's just a few people, not even a lot of people, just a few people. They start gathering. They start praying, God, bring revival to our land. And they were repenting of their sins, and they were recommitting themselves and fully submitting themselves to Jesus. That's how the whole thing started. Just a small group of people saying, God, we want to see revival in our land. Purify our hearts. God, move in your church, Jesus. Revive your church because the church is dead. 
Our country is dead because the church is dead. Jesus, would you stir up the fire inside of the church and would it start with us? So they're meeting for months just praying, confessing sins, repenting, seeking after Jesus. And then that fall, they have their first meeting. He just preaches repentance. And over the course of the next year, between 100 and 150,000 people 10% of the population of the entire nation commit their lives to following after Jesus. Why did that happen? I mean, it changed the entire nation. Jails were emptied. You can go back and historical documents show in newspapers talking about this phenomenon that's going on. People who are atheists and agnostics, didn't even believe in it. It's like something really good is happening here because our jails are empty. We're having to lay off officers because there's not enough work for them to do. Why? Because God came and he healed the land. And it was in response to a small group of people who committed themselves to repenting of their sins, to humbling themselves, to praying, to seeking after the face of God. And he moved. 10% of a nation in one year. What would happen if 10% of our city decided they were going to follow after Jesus? had a real encounter with the living God. It changed everything about our city. Healing would come to our land. That's only going to happen if we humble ourselves, if we repent of our sins, and if we pray. The reality we see right now is because of the church the church needs revival. We need revival. I need revival. That's my great pursuit of 2018. God, revive me. Put a fire inside of my heart that can't be contained. God, I want to be a man of prayer like I've never been before. Because our land needs healing. I'm calling us all to do that. Make 2018 the year where we really learn to pray, where we really learn to humble ourselves and to repent so that we can see healing come to our land. I was a part of that with these 21 days of prayer on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. right here in this room. The band practices before that. And then from 8 to 9 p.m., we're just going to be in here. We're going to do revival praying. And that's what we're going to do. However many of us gather on Thursday nights from 8 to 9, the band's going to lead us in worship. And then they're just going to play and we're going to pray. And we're just going to ask, God, would you come? God, forgive us of our sins. God, we're humbling ourselves before you. Jesus, would you come and would you heal our land? That's what we're going to pray for. We're not going to get into everybody's personal lives about different things like that. There's different times to pray for that kind of stuff. But Thursday nights from 8 to 9, it's going to be about praying for revival and repentance in our hearts and for revival inside of our city. That's all it's going to be about. I encourage you, join me, be here. Let's seek after God because our city needs it, because our nation needs it, and this world needs it. Father, we're so grateful that you're such a good God, that your heart is that you want to bring healing. God, your heart's more broken about the brokenness of this world than ours ever could be. But Jesus, I pray that right now that you would begin to break our hearts. 
that you would break our hearts for injustice and oppression. God, that you would break our hearts for the poor and for the needy. God, that you would break our hearts for the way that people are abused. Jesus, that you would break our hearts for the fact that you laid down your life to bring healing, that you laid down your life to bring freedom, but so many people continue to live in the bondage and in the chains of sin and slavery to sin. God, break our heart that we wouldn't be okay with it anymore. God, that it would drive us to our knees, that it would drive us to prayer knowing that our only hope is in you. God, would we be a humble people? God, you said that we're either going to humble ourselves voluntarily or you're going to humble us. So Jesus, I pray that you would move in our hearts, that we would humble ourselves voluntarily. But I even pray for your humbling if we choose not to. And Jesus, I pray that as we repent, as we seek after your faith, that we would encounter you. And God, that we would see power, that we'd experience power like we've never known it before, that we would know your presence and your face like we've never known it before. God, that we would see your kingdom coming and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. God, stir up that holy conviction in our heart of the if-then of what's going to happen, the if-then of healing coming to our land in response to the prayers of your people. And God, also convict us to the reality of the if-then if we choose not to. Stir in our hearts, God. We're your people. You're our God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to call my prayer partners forward. It's going to be on the outsides of the aisle here. And if there's anything we can pray for you about, we would love to pray. If not, I encourage you to be here Thursday night from 8 to 9. Uh, if you're interested in hosting a, a breakthrough group, you can go out to Guest Central and there's some people who can help you there. Or go to our website, readyna2.com. If not, see you guys next week. God bless. Happy New Year.